episode 26, talking about MTM, medication therapy management, with Bernie Vitti of Pharmacare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Did you know that one-third of hospital readmissions are due to medication errors and or medication adverse events, some of which are caused by non-adherence? That stat is according to Bernie Vitti of Pharmacare, who I am speaking with today. Pharmacare is a really interesting organization. It was founded over 40 years ago. Bernie joined the organization a few years ago, must be three or four at least by now. And his role is really how to take the idea of a clinical consultant pharmacist that has been kind of um, the standard of care in skilled nursing facilities and long-term care facilities, as well as institutions, you know, how to take that same idea and deliver it inside of a community setting. I'll let Bernie explain how exactly he goes about that. Welcome to the program this morning, Bernie. Thank you, Stacy. Pleasure to be here. Before we start to talk about your present day adventures over at Pharmacare, could you tell us your, your origin story? You know, how, how did you come to be doing what you're, you're doing right now? Well, it started uh, in Big Pharma. I was involved with Big Pharmaceuticals for 30 years. And during my time there, I had many different roles. But one of the roles was uh, to be a... Uh, specific account management in long-term care. And the reason I say that is because that's when I first found Pharmacare. They offered me an opportunity, and after 30 years of being in Big Pharma, I decided it was time to take the leap. And that's how I got here. So you move fast. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> they also had a program that I always wanted to do. And that's what we'll probably be talking about today. And it was in the medication management forum. Uh, that's what brought me here. Good foreshadowing, Bernie. Maybe you could offer a little bit of background on what exactly is a clinical consultant pharmacist, or what's the correct terminology there? Yes, a, a clinical consultant pharmacist. You're correct, and that's a good question, uh, because I think that most people today look at a pharmacist as the person that's behind the counter counting pills and then distributing the medication. That's not what clinical pharmacists do. Clinical pharmacists 24-7 are involved with medication management forums. And what I mean by that, they can come in all sizes, shapes, and forms. They're involved with drug utilization reviews, drug utilization evaluations, medication therapy management, comprehensive medication management. All those different medication management tools are done in different settings. Pharmacare started its course by working in the institutional segment. And they started in skilled nursing facilities. And then it branched out to assisted living and then to continuing care retirement centers. And we became very successful in that venue. We also were given a state contract by the state of New Jersey to do their clinical pharmacy work in the state psychiatric segment of the business. And so now we had two different sectors, if you will. The, the skilled nursing home was a private sector. The state contract that had the state psychiatric centers was the state sector. 
So if it's basically some sort of chart review. So in other words, patient gets admitted to skilled nursing facility or psychiatric uh, ward or basically some institution where Pharmacare has a contract and you are sitting in your offices over there. You get a pile of charts and you go through them in order to assess uh, what? Yes, and it is. It is a chart review, so you're correct. Now, you said sitting in the office. Well, the net, we don't sit in the Pharmacare office. We actually have offices right in the facility, whether it be a skilled nursing facility, a state psychiatric facility. They give us space. So we become really members of their organization. That pharmacist, that clinical pharmacist, is assigned to that facility or facilities and they become very close and they develop a very, uh, a, a really long-term relationship is, is involved. And you said, and what do they look at? As I mentioned before, they do things like drug utilization reviews, drug utilization evaluations, so that they can help the facilities work on their survey objectives, so that when JACO comes in, they can pass that survey, because much of it today, when I say much of it, surveys, are involved on the distribution of medications. How are they distributed? And which patients are getting which medication? Are you looking at dose reduction in certain types of medications, like antipsychotics, for example? So they're looking at all this, and our clinical pharmacists are trained and they're educated in helping those healthcare providers in those facilities do their job better, not only just taking care of the patient, but also helping them with their needs. You know, actually, when you were saying that as a pharmaceutical account manager, you called on a non-prescribing pharmacist, that struck me as a little bit odd, but I think it's all coming together now. I'm assuming that what your role had been at the time was as an educator to ensure that the, the clinical pharmacist really understood what the benefit and, you know, safety and efficacy of a product was so that you could ensure that the drugs were being properly prescribed. Is that, does that nail it? Got it. Stacy, right on. Perfect. The whole thing as an account manager, and I was, I was questioned many times by our company saying, why are you calling on clinical pharmacists who do no prescribing? What is the value of the clinical pharmacist? So I had to educate our own company. Here's the role of a clinical pharmacist. Although they do not prescribe and they are, they do not distribute medication. They are with the patient, with the nurse, with the physician. So if the clinical pharmacist believes in your medication and believes that it will truly get the patient to go, they're going to recommend your product. So then the physician becomes very much attuned to, oh, so the clinical pharmacist agrees with what I'm doing. And sometimes the clinical pharmacist may have a suggestion for the physician. And that's a key point, suggestion. We don't tell them what to do. The clinical pharmacist's role is to show the physician if there is another medication or alternative that can get the patient to go, but it's going to be ultimately the physician's decision whether they do that. And then the physician, nurse, and pharmacist all work together with that. But the whole thing is really to get the pharmacist to agree to the value of the medication what it brings to the patient, and then they're the ones that recommend it to the healthcare providers. And it, it just snowballs down the road because those clinical pharmacists are looked upon as experts in medication management. 
And I never really thought about this before, but in the new emerging structures that are coming out of reimbursement reform and pay for value, in other words, accountable care organizations and, and basically any vertically integrated structure that is capitated or being paid by patient outcomes, one of the things that is always discussed is how do we integrate pharmacists? You know, how do we how do we collaborate as a care team? And it never really occurred to me that SNFs, you know, skilled nursing facilities or long-term care facilities have been integrating a clinical pharmacist into the care team for years. Oh, yeah. And I, I constantly brought that to the forefront, uh, even with our CEOs in those large pharmaceutical companies discussing the value of clinical pharmacists. I will have to tell you, some of them accepted it. Some of them did not. Some of them were, well, I hate to use the, the term old fashioned in the sense that that is not the prescriber. So why are you wasting your time? And then came the visionary saying, I get it. Those people may not be the prescribers, but they influence literally thousands of patients. Correct. Now you're getting it because if they influence and they can get to the prescriber, you're not talking about putting two or three patients on your product. You could get into the hundreds because the product has, has proved its value and now the pharmacist is backing it up. And the, the physician feels a lot more secure in prescribing that product in that patient segment. It's different from the office patient, but in the skilled nursing facility where the patients are frail, more complex, that becomes a key component. And I would think that if any organization that is a stakeholder in the healthcare space today doesn't still does not understand the influence or the power of influencers, they're going to have some trouble. So in the end, Bernie, you will prevail. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try our best. <laughs> so let's talk about medication therapy management, which I know is, is something that Pharmacare has been on the, the vanguard of. Maybe for people who are a little bit less familiar with it, could you just explain briefly what what is this MTM, medication therapy management? I guess the best and easiest way to explain this is this. Picture an umbrella. Label the umbrella MTM, medication therapy management. Underneath that umbrella comes many different sizes, shapes, and forms of medication management. So label it MTM for the sake of that's what CMS labeled it, MTM. So that's what everybody knows. But under MTM comes CMM. That's comprehensive medication management which a lot of physicians rather hear than medication therapy management. Believe it or not, there's a difference. Then there's another form of medication management. It's called comprehensive medication review. That is something that CMS has put in the health plans table in the sense that a CMR, a comprehensive medication review, is available to all Medicare beneficiaries. But most people don't even know that. But it's only once a year. Not that that is the most effective, because I think that a CMR should be done three to four times a year. But CMS has said one a year, and it's completely covered by their health plan. So that's a CMR. Then there's a targeted medication review, which is more intense, and it's more geared towards a particular, or I should say, several chronic conditions like diabetes, hypertension, and hypolipidemia. 
So all these different forms of medication management fall under MTM. It depends who you speak to. If you speak to a physician and maybe like an ACO, they like to look at it as comprehensive medication management. And personally, I think they're right because what we do is comprehensive. And MTM can be viewed upon as, the, as something as a disease state. Well, you are dealing with disease states, but you're dealing with multiple disease states. So it does come become comprehensive. So medication therapy management started in 2006 when CMS said to the health plans, here comes Medicare Part D. And if you can go back to 2006, there was a lot of confusion when MedD came out and the health plans had to take it and everybody was interpreting different ways. CMS also launched MTM at the same time, saying all your Medicare beneficiaries that are part of an MD plan, you are, are requested to give this MTM, also known as CMR. But many health plans really, they, they didn't make that a priority. They didn't get around to it. And over the years, as it evolved, CMS said, okay, let's step this up a little bit because we don't see a lot of our Medicare beneficiaries being given an MTM review or a CMR. So CMS now has made that a priority with the health plans. When I say health plans, I'm talking about those Medicare Part D, the PDP plans, like in Aetna, United Healthcare, and Blue Cross Blue Shield. These organizations then need to step that up because CMS is asking them to do it. And it comes down to this. Some are doing it in their own way, and some haven't really dabbled into it yet. But they will because it's, the, it's really the movement that we're going in now with the ACA and the ACOs. So let me understand this for a sec. Okay, we've got the CMR, which is the CMS, you know, Medicare Part D's version of, of MTM. Right. Now, one thing that confuses me is that these Medicare Part D plans, obviously they're pharmacy benefit plans. So they pay for drugs, they're pharmaceutical insurance. But I would think that a CMR, MTM, is actually a medical service. So how does, how does that work? Well, don't forget, these health plans, though, also have pharmacists on board. So being that they do have these, uh, these expertise skill sets within their organization, they, then, they can do a, let's just call it CMR for right now, a comprehensive medication review. And there's a, there's a criteria that CMS puts out on a CMR. And it, it has evolved from 2006. So there's right. actually, I'm, I'm sorry to interject. So yeah. I, I guess I didn't ask the, the question very well. So there's actually, you know, Part D plans are paying pharmacists to conduct this, what amounts to medical service. Some are, most are not. Most are not paying the pharmacists to do it. And you bring up a very good point. Because when it comes to MTM and CMR and CMM, reimbursement is an issue with pharmacists. Because don't forget, pharmacists are not considered healthcare professionals. Now, there are a couple of states out there, like California and Pennsylvania, that have recognized the value of pharmacists. But pharmacists cannot bill out. There are three CPT codes that pharmacists can use, but they haven't been really turned on by CMS yet. 
it is being evaluated by CMS because CMS recognizes the value of the pharmacist. And in order to get the MTM program launched properly, you really need to have the pharmacist at the helm with this because, let's face it, when it comes to medication, they're the medication experts. These are the people that went to pharmacy school and have taken pharmacology for seven years. Most pharmacists today graduate with as a PharmD. So you, need, you, you have an expert out there that can really help the healthcare team. With that in, in, in place and the pharmacist having all these credentials, they then can be the, the person, let's say in a skilled nursing facility, where they're actually working like we are. They can be the person responsible for doing a comprehensive medication review because the facility knows who they are already. They develop the relationship. They know the patients. So with the CMR that CMS is, is attempting to mandate to these PDP plans, I'm still confused who the plan is paying to conduct that. Or are they just telling Part D plans, make sure all your patients get covered and then not paying anybody to do it? Right. Now, it's up to the plan what they want to do. Some plans would go out and hire their own pharmacists because to do a CMR, and you ask a good question here. You, when you say you're confused, you're not the only one. Uh, you know, this is all about education on CMRs and how it could be done. And there's some unanswered questions yet. But PDP plans can do a couple of things. One, they can hire their own pharmacists and go to the facility to do a CMR because a CMR should be face to face. Some plans look at doing it telephonically. Very difficult to do a, tel- a telephonic. CMR over the phone in a skilled nursing facility. Very difficult because you most times can't get to the patient. You have to first go through administrator, a director of nursing, the nurse, the, the nurse on the wing that's taking care of that patient. And some facilities are very cautious as to who they let their patient speak to or the patient's family. But if you have a clinical consultant pharmacist who's already working in that facility. They are the best people to do it. Essentially, what you're advocating is the PDP plans pays a clinical pharmacist in the, you know, in in a live-in facility. Well, that hasn't been totally determined yet. I think that's still what clinical pharmacists, especially the ASCPs, what they're doing is trying to convince CMS that, yes, either the pharmacist is able to bill out directly to Medicare, without using the plan, or that the plan pays the pharmacist in that facility for doing the CMR. However, that, that's not been settled yet. The PDP plan can do it themselves if they can gain entry into those facilities. Many of them have experienced that barrier, and it becomes very difficult to do. So basically what we're saying is that there's so much TBD that it's kind of a cluster at this juncture. That's that's what I mean. It is. <laughs> it, it is. It's still being discussed. But uh, the cl- and I'm talking about clinical pharmacists across the country, not just Pharmacare now. So I'm talking on their behalf. They've met with CMS. They suggested that clinical pharmacists be the ones in the facility, the skilled nursing facility, to do the CMR because they're the ones that are there consistently. What about patients in the community? You know, I understand Uh, that it might be that there are pharmacists, the the, the clinical consulting pharmacists in an SNF 
who, you know, or other facility who have access to patients. But but what about in, in the community? How are PDP plans thinking that they are going to do these CMR comprehensive medical reviews for community patients? Great question, Stacy. And I can tell you this is that if we had the answer to all of that, maybe we wouldn't be sitting here right now. But here's what I will tell you what's going on with that. One of the reasons I came here to Pharmacare was to take the success that they had in the institution, take that concept and model and bring it out to the community. Because the commercial art world out there is so large compared to the institutional world. So we've demonstrated the success already. Let's bring it out to the community. We've done that here at Pharmacare. Can you talk about that a little bit? You know, sure. like, what did you do to demonstrate the success of, of bringing the institutional model to the community? There are two things that I can use as examples or we can, use, we can hang our hat on. And, and you really need a lot of perseverance and patience in doing this. First of all, we went out to the community and told them about what MTM is. We educated the community. And we started with the division of aging in each county of New Jersey. And lo and behold, one of the counties heard our presentation and said, my gosh, I didn't even know that this service was even available to our senior and elderly folks out in the community. And they're not part of the institution. They're living alone out there in their own homes, in their own apartments. And I said, yes, it is. What happened was they became so intrigued. They said there is a need for this. They actually got us, us, Pharmacare, the first state contract that was called. And I don't want to be too confusing, but I'm just want to know what this is. It's a CRT. What's that? And that's caregiver recipient training. So what does that all mean with MTM? And basically it is MTM, but the state wanted us to use that as an educational vehicle to train care coordinators in each county dealing with the elderly population because those care coordinators did just that. They coordinated that care for the needy elderly in each county, and it was done through the Division of Aging. And so when the Division of Aging of each county saw this, particularly select counties, there were about six of them that really supported our efforts it went through the state, and the state approved us. We were the first, and they never had anyone come in and do this before. So we were treading on new grounds where the care coordinator in each county said, here's uh, a group of patients that we'd like to have your pharmacists sit down with, and we will lead you to them, and then you do your what they call CRT. And so it was an educational session. It wasn't a true MTM, but it was leading up to an MTM. So our clinical pharmacist actually went into the resident's home, and they met with the resident with a caregiver or a care coordinator. And lo and behold, we got some very good feedback from the county division of aging saying, gosh, you know what? Were you just there with Mrs. Jones? She used to call here all the time. We didn't know how to handle it. Now she's not calling anymore. Well, she's not calling because on the medication side. Not just on, not on the medical side, that you have experts doing that, but on the medication side, it didn't seem so confusing anymore. We were able to organize that individual and have them understand why they were on the medication. And the number one thing you, what you try to do there, Stacy, increase medication adherence. Don't come off the medication. Don't take yourself off. That's the physician's job. 
you'd be surprised what we found out there. I mean, I can go on and on. That's This is not the setting for that. But we have to teach them. Become adherent. Do what your healthcare provider tells you to do. Not just the doctor, but your nurse, your care coordinator, your pharmacist, your therapist. It's all about collaborative medicine. So we got that first contract. That's one thing. And the second thing is probably it's, it is a form of MPN, and it's called a value-based benefit design or a value-based care solution. And we brought that to a municipality in New Jersey, the first of its kind, the only municipality to do it, and it was a replica of the Asheville Project. And we actually brought that to New Jersey with excellent results. Matter of fact, we're getting final results now the beginning of next week. But preliminary results show what the Asheville Project showed. And uh, anybody that's a pharmacist knows the value of the Asheville Project. They showed a four-to-one ratio. What does that mean? In short, for every dollar invested in a value-based benefit design program, which is a form of MTN, you'll get $3 back. We proved the same exact thing in New Jersey. Only ours was for every dollar invested, you're getting $3.15 back. So the municipality looked at it and said, my gosh, how come we didn't do this before? So now we use that as a model, and I'm sure we're going to be taken out to other, not just municipalities, but employers. It sounds like the, the two examples that, that you gave, the, the first one being how do you provide, you called it a CRT, the care, this caregiver uh, recipient training, training, recipient yes. training, w- which it basically helps aging in place. Yes. It helps older people stay mm-hmm. in their homes longer. And that was paid for by the state of New Jersey, the state of New Jersey. And then the second example that you gave with this value based benefit design that was paid for by a, a municipality. Correct. So it sounds like who's edging up to the plate here are communities and municipalities and kind of local government entities. And you're right, Stacey. And that's why before you were talking about, well, how, who pays for what? The reimbursement structure is such that since pharmacists cannot bill out for their services, and personally, I'm not a pharmacist, they need to be given provider services so they can bill out. And that would answer a lot of questions. But because we can't, you look for other avenues of reimbursement and where you could show a savings, like we did at the municipality, like we did with the state of New Jersey, those people then invest and they do, you know, step out of the box and make the investment and take a look at the savings. I would think that one of the issues that an employer would have instituting something like the program that that you did, you know, basically repurposing, if that's the right word, the Asheville methodology into a community in New Jersey, an employer that's large enough to be interested in something like this might have facilities spread across the country, or they might not have a local enough market whereby a critical mass of pharmacists could be employed in the initiative. Does does that make sense? Yes. And sometimes you do need, I don't know if I'd say critical mass, you really don't need that many clinical pharmacists to do this value-based benefit design. Now, some people will call this, uh, they call it VBBD or value-based insurance design or value-based care solutions. 
Call it what you will, but you're going to hear different versions of it. It's a value-based design. And you can say, okay, so now how do you really do this? And, you know, who's paying for what? And usually it's going to be the entity by which is going to save the money. So I'm going to give you a great example. And you said there are bigger entities out there than a municipality. The best example that I could give for a value-based insurance design, it was the first of its kind in a big organization, is the Pitney Bowes example. They did it back in 2001. They instituted a VBID. They had some of their own people. They did bring in some pharmacists. But you had a medical director for Pitney Bowes that was visionary. And he saw it way back in 2001, saying, you know what? It's not about just formulary management. It's not about just switching from a brand name medication to a generic medication. Because even if you switch, yeah, you're going to save some money right there and then. But that employee of ours still has that disease state. Whether they're on a brand or a generic, there's still a cost to that. And that can get worse over time. So we need to educate our employees. And we want them to take it upon themselves to educate themselves, get into a self-management mode. We're going to give them the tools. And we're going to save money because what? They're not going to be going to the emergency room. They're not going to be admitted to hospitals and they will be at work. So there's now the question of presenteeism versus absenteeism. Dr. Mahoney was that chief medical officer at Pitney Bowes, and he was 100% right, and the results have been astonishing over there. The savings have been enormous, into the millions, because he took that long, active approach, not short action, but long action, and he knew down the road his costs were only going to get more and more and more. And I don't have to tell you where the healthcare costs are today. He had vision. And that is one of the best examples that I can give you of a large organization like Pitney Bowes having success with a value-based uh, approach. And there have been others. Caterpillar did it. IBM did it. And they did it. Sometimes they tweaked it. And it's okay. You can tweak an MPM program or a value-based Benefit design, remember what I said before, it's all about customization. Customize it to your needs. As you're talking about customizing, what I'm thinking about is evolving. And obviously, we've got this precedent. We've got a couple of precedent case studies here, Asheville, and then we've also got the Pitney Bowes example. One of the things that is very on everybody's mind right now is how do we standardize care? In fact, I was listening to Eric Topol speak the other day at a, a conference in the city, and he was talking about no freelancers. You know, the doctors can't be or healthcare providers can't be out there, what he called freelancing and establishing care protocols based on their own experience, that all care protocols need to be standardized based on what is evidence-based medicine. What I'm curious about is whether that same idea applies to MTM? I mean, are there standardized approaches to this delivering MTM that have evolved over the years? Good question. I guess we start off to answer that question is take a look at the roots of MTM. There's a concept, there's a model. What is it? It's the Asheville Project. 
no one's going to take anything away from Asheville because that was the model that started this whole MTM movement, that started this whole value-based benefit design, disease management approach. No matter how you cut the dice, Asheville started the model. So since you have a model in place and it, it became standardized, you can take the concept, which the uh, APH did, the American Pharmacy Association, they actually took that. And there are standardized forms that you can get from APHA. And they even have training programs on this that you could use in your own NTM program. So a pharmacist in Kalamazoo, Michigan, has the same form, the same standardized forms that a pharmacist would in New Jersey or Florida, right through APHA, because they recognized Asheville as the model. And so it worked. They proved that it worked. And that is now, that's now been distributed across the land. And I'm going to say one person's name here who needs to be credited for all this. And guess what? He's not even a healthcare provider. He was the risk manager of Asheville, North Carolina. His name is John Mile. And John Mile got this all started. That model worked because John got all the healthcare providers together. Collaboration. Physicians, pharmacists, nurses, certified diabetic educators, the hospital, the health plan. He got them all together. And it was, how are we going to stop healthcare spending in this small city of Asheville, North Carolina? And what they found, it was the diabetic patient and the hypertensive patient, and then they even found COPD. Those are the three chronic disease states that accounted for over 85% of all their spending. So they had to get a, uh, a handle on that. And they started this MTM movement or a disease management program. And the pharmacists were the people that John chose as the coach, if you will. They became the coach and the liaison to all those different healthcare providers. And it worked. Now you can take that same model. And when I say customize, you say standardize. You've got forms out there. You do have a model. Now customize that to your needs, your organization, so it can work. And there are different examples of that as well. But And the one I can tell you is the one that we did. The models are basically the same. There are certain tweaks that a healthcare provider would like to include. And then it's de dependent upon the interdisciplinary team to decide if that's what's going to happen, if what we need to add or delete. Good advice, Bernie. Is there anything that you would like to add or any advice that you might like to give to those listening today? Just one other thing, Stacy, and that is this. I mean, you know, we can go on and on for hours on this, but just one other piece of advice is that anyone wishing to launch an MTM program, if you will, be cognizant of two things. One, make sure it's long-term, not short-term. If you're looking for short-term results with an MTM model, think of healthcare. People are creatures of habit, and when it comes to healthcare, it took a long time for them to develop whatever chronic conditions they have. They're not going to. They're not going to switch over a six-month period. They're just not. It's just the behavior of people. So think of the MTM process as an evolving process, a continuous process, and it is long-term results. That's number one. Number two, reimbursement. We need to be cognizant of reimbursement both on the patient's part, ultimately the patient. 
and the pharmacist. Once we can settle on that, I think you're going to see MTM really take off and evolve to what it's supposed to do. Those are the two things that I'll leave people with, you know, to get into MTM. There are other things that they need to consider, but remember those two things. Don't expect to tell your superiors that you're going to show them results in six to 12 months. If anybody tells me that, I look at them cross-eyed and say, you show me that model and then you'll convince me. But up until this point, and I've done a lot of these, I have not seen it. You've got to wait two plus years. And on the Asheville program showed you real good results, two to five years. You can't say six to 12. It just doesn't work that way. So be patient, be cognizant of long-term versus short-term, and then let's take a look at the reimbursement models and let's get them to where they need to be so that we can help these needy patients out there, whether they be seniors or non-seniors, Medication therapy management needs to be part of the whole healthcare system. Sage advice, Bernie. So if someone would like to get a little bit more information from your well of wisdom, where where can you be found? Uh, my email is very simple. It's B like in boy. And then my last name is VT, V like in Victor, I-T-T-I. So it's BVITI at Pharmacare Inc. Pharmacare Inc. All one word dot com. That's my email. And uh, my cell phone is 732-882-4869. And I'd be willing to take any call from anyone because I have a passion for this and I really want to see this really take off because it's it's needed for all types of patients and employees. Well, your your passion is very inspirational. And I thank you so much for being on the program today, Bernie. Thank you, Stacey. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, the cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a, a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is also in that same right hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. It, we would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.